0: Good morning to each and every one. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Paul's first epistle, uh, first letter to the Corinthians. I don't know about you, but I assume you are somewhat like me. Uh, Whenever I embark on a journey, a road trip, I like to know where I'm going, and I like to know how I'm going to get there. I think both of those things are extremely important. Uh, Where we're going and how we are going to get there. Studying a book of the Bible is not unlike a road trip. We need some knowledge up front as to one, where are we going? And number two, how are we going to arrive at our destination? How? Are we going to get there? And so as we have embarked now on our study of 1 Corinthians, I think it would be a good idea for us just to pause for a moment and map it out. And plan ahead. Think ahead. Again, along those two lines as to one, where are we heading? 16 chapters. It's a big book. And how are we going to arrive at our destination? So there are going to be three slides. You are now looking at slide number one. There's my outline of the book. That's it. Four points. There is an introduction. Chapter one, the first nine verses. Uh, Paul just eases into the epistle with an introductory word. It includes a greeting. It includes Paul identifying himself as the author And it includes several important truths which become formative for the entire letter. After the introduction, we have a response to a report. And so Paul writes this letter from the city of Ephesus. He writes it to the church in Corinth. Why does he write it? He writes it in the first instance because he has received a report. You can go back into chapter 1. You can look at verse 11, and you will discover, because Paul says it, hey, I'm responding to what I've heard from Chloe's people. Who's Chloe? Evidently a member in the church at Corinth. Who are her people? We don't really know. Maybe family members. Maybe servants in her household. Or maybe the church in Corinth actually met in homes on a Sunday morning. And there were certain people who would gather in her home, whatever the case may be, someone or multiple people have traveled to Ephesus and they have given Paul a report of what is happening in the church at Corinth. Paul writes a response and he begins in the 10th verse of chapter 1 and you see there goes all the way through to the end of chapter 6. And then the next thing he does is he responds to a Letter, I'm not making this up. You can turn to chapter 7, the very first verse. And what does he say there? Concerning the things which you wrote. And from chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 15, he responds to a letter which the church at Corinth had sent to him. And then in chapter 16, you have a conclusion. There you go, mapped out for you. I think we need a little more detail, a little more detail. So bring up the second slide. What's in the response to the report? So, that first section, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through to the end of chapter 6, what's in that response? Here it is, summed up for you. Paul addresses four disturbing problems. Four disturbing problems. We could label these in many different ways. All I've done is extract a word from each section, and I'm going to employ it as the title for each. And so firstly, he deals with quarreling among the members of the church in Corinth from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 21. And then secondly, he deals with boasting, not boasting in general, But boasting in regards to something very specific, what? The Corinthian church was actually tolerating gross sexual immorality in their midst and boasting of their tolerance. And Paul hits them head on in this section, chapter five. Thirdly, defrauding. Christians were taking other Christians to court. Christians were suing other Christians. And he addresses this disturbing problem In chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Actually, just as I look at it now, something is wrong. Boasting. It's not verse 11. I think chapter 5 goes all the way to verse 13. You double-check that for me. But I'm pretty sure there are 13 verses in chapter 5. Defrauding is the third disturbing problem he addresses. And then the fourth, sinning. In chapter 6, verse 9 through to verse 20. Again, not sinning in general. But sinning against one's own body. He addresses there a very specific sin. So that is, in a nutshell, as we map it out, the epistle, the letter, where are we going and how are we going to get there? There's the first major section. It is Paul's response to a report and he deals with head-on four disturbing problems, quarreling, boasting, defrauding, and sinning. And then next slide. With chapter 7, verse 1, he's no longer responding to that verbal report or oral report. He is now responding to a written letter in which he deals with five perplexing issues. Five perplexing issues. Number one, marriage. A perplexing issue, marriage. The believers in Corinth have a number of questions concerning the institution of marriage. He deals with them all in chapter 7. The culture. What is the believer's relationship to the culture at large outside of the church? That in which the church finds itself. And Paul labors for quite a while on this subject. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. And then the third perplexing issue, worship. Should women be wearing head coverings in worship? What is a head covering? What is it Paul is talking about there in the 11th chapter? What are some of those contentious issues surrounding the practice of the Lord's Supper? Spirituality. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. The spiritual gifts. What are they? What purpose or purposes do they serve? What is the gift of prophecy? What is the gift of tongues? How are these things supposed to be practiced? Are women allowed to practice these things in the context of the local church? Uh, What is the greater way that Paul points to in the 13th chapter? What is true spirituality? And he deals with that entire issue in those three chapters. And then he rounds it off. The fifth perplexing issue, chapter 15, the resurrection and all of its implications for the Christian life. You can take that away. We're done with the slides. There you are. We have mapped it out. We know exactly where we're going, and we know exactly how we are going to get there. And so there is absolutely no reason for us to get lost along the way. We're going to consult that time and time again. It will keep us right online on our journey. We understand this epistle is a response, is what it is. And a response, yes, to a report. And then secondly, a response to a letter. Return with me to the introduction. The first nine verses of chapter 1. Because what Paul essentially does there is set the foundation for everything else that is coming. He knows, he knows from the two reports, whether it be the oral report or the written report, the written letter, he knows that something is dreadfully wrong in the church at Corinth. And here it is when you just peel back all the layers and get right down to the root, the core problem, it is simply this. The believers in the church at Corinth have forgotten who they are. They have lost sight of their identity in Christ. They are no longer grasping and they are certainly no longer living out what it means to be one With Christ. And so Paul lays this important foundation in the first nine verses. Let me read them again for us. Here it is the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge There's the foundation set. It consists of eight marks. Here they are again. These form the content of our study last Lord's Day. But here they are once more. Number one, we are the church of God. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. Therefore, we are to glorify God In our bodies. Here's number two. We are sanctified in Christ positionally and we are called to be saints to live out in practice 24 seven who we are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, we are those who call. Upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we ascribe the cause of our salvation from start to finish to Christ. We are saved because of Christ. We are saved through Christ. We are saved in Christ. We call upon his name. Fourthly, we are the daily recipients of the grace and peace of God. God's sustaining grace, sanctifying grace, fortifying grace, strengthening grace by which we endure, endure and we enjoy shalom daily, peace with God. Fifthly, we are enriched in Christ. We are the recipients of spiritual gifts that are to be used for the betterment, the edification, the growth of Christ's church. Number six, we are waiting, hoping, waiting for something. Specifically, the revealing of Christ Jesus. Number seven, we are sustained to the end, guiltless. Our our perseverance depends upon his preservation. We persevere because God preserves us. It is not dependent upon us. It is dependent upon his grace, his grace acting and operative in us. And number eight, we are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, what I want to do this morning is simply this. I want to go to that eighth mark. It's there in the ninth verse. We are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I want to unpack it. I want us to make sure we really understand this because we're dealing with the foundation and we want to be clear in our thinking. We want, to, we want to grasp this point. We want to embrace this point. We want to appropriate it. We want to make it our own and we want to live in accordance with it. And everything, let me repeat again, everything that is, Paul is going to say right through this epistle, it relates back to this central motif You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all of the issues, all of the problems which have arisen in the church at Corinth, they exist. Why? Because they have forgotten what it means to be called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, their Lord. And they are no longer living in a manner consistent with their identity in Christ Jesus. So we're going to unpack this. And we're going to unpack it by turning where? Yes, you know, our grace verse. The end of the chapter, verses 30 and 31, which incidentally, if you're interested, when I think of my top favorite verses, this is in the top five. Actually, let me me word that differently. When I think of those verses, parts and portions of Scripture that God has used profoundly in my life. There are many, obviously, but if I, if I were to give you a top five, I mean, those, those texts that were like an epiphany at one moment in my life affected me, impacted me deeply. This text is without a doubt right there, the top five. Here it is, verse 30. He is the source of your life. I'm reading from an older rendition of the ESV. If you're reading from a newer rendition, that which we are memorizing, it is because of him or because of God. It's the same thought. Paul is emphasizing origin, right? Source. God is the source of your life. In Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification And redemption. Therefore, it's a big, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I I love to insert things, not in scripture, but just kind of the thought flow. Therefore, the individual who wants to be sensible, the person who actually wants to be a thinking person, rational. Well, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord the Lord three truths I want to convey three truths I pray by the Spirit of God we will all take to heart this lord's day. Here's number 1. God is the source of our life in Christ Jesus. It goes without saying, it is his opening phrase, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, or because of God. He is pointing back to origin. We are alive in Christ Jesus, and friend, Christian, understand this. There is only one reason why you are alive in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian this day, there is only one reason. We might think to ourselves, well, it's because I Believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not deny that. It is absolutely essential. But let's go even further back. Why did I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I stand before you as a Christian this day, and there is but one explanation, one answer, and it is God Himself. God did something in me. God sovereignly performed a work in me that the scripture likens to His work of creation. He manifested his power and his wisdom and his goodness in my life in unparalleled fashion. He is the source of our life in Christ Jesus. And how did he do this? Quite simply, it was the Spirit of God who implanted us into Christ. The Spirit of God entered in the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. And by virtue of the Holy Spirit, I was implanted into Christ. I was knit together with Christ. I was made one with Jesus Christ. The Bible, Paul himself goes to great lengths in scripture, in his epistles to to help us understand this. He employs several metaphors. He speaks of the head and the body, doesn't he, in Ephesians chapter 4, to explain this spiritual union. Ephesians chapter 5, he speaks of the husband and the wife, just as as they are brought together and they make one flesh, he says it right there in Ephesians 5. This mystery is great, but guess what? I'm not speaking of it. I'm quoting from Genesis chapter 2, the fact that God, yes, declared that man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, whereby they will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. This is a profound mystery. This is a wonderful mystery. But I'm actually speaking in reference to Christ in the church. That they are brought together and they are made one in an indissoluble union. Why does this happen? Because God, he is the source of our life In Christ Jesus. James Packer, J.I. Packer, as he reflects on this, he penned the following. It's in your sermon notes in the bulletin. Here it is. The taproot, the taproot of our entire salvation is our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. What is the gospel? If you were to ask, ask me that right now at this very moment, what is the gospel? Sum it up for me in as few words as possible. I would answer union with Christ. It is the gospel. The heart of the gospel. It is the taproot of salvation. That God makes us one by the Holy Spirit with his beloved son. This means three implications. It means that our salvation is positional. Grasp this, please. It's just about the most encouraging truth you will ever hear as a Christian. It means that our salvation is positional. By the Spirit of God, we are implanted into Christ. And because we are implanted into Christ, made one with Him positionally in God's reckoning, in God's estimation, we are one with Christ. Do you know what that means? It means a lot of things. For starters, it means this. Christ's dying is my dying. As far as God is concerned, when Christ died upon Calvary's cross, because I am one with him, I died upon Calvary's cross. His living Rising and living are my rising and living because I'm implanted into him in God's reckoning. I, therefore, I am one with him positionally. Therefore, I died with him upon Calvary's cross. I know for certain the penalty of my sin is paid in full because I'm one with the one who paid it. And I have now risen with Christ And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. My salvation is positional. Oh, but it means, secondly, that my salvation is relational. You see, by the Holy Spirit, I am implanted into Christ. And this Holy Spirit, who now dwells in me, the Spirit of Christ himself, Well, this Holy Spirit is the great revealer of God, is revelation. And the Holy Spirit inspired the word of God, breathed out the word of God, breathed out that revelation, which we now possess in this book. And the Holy Spirit is now what? The great illuminating light of this word. He now illumines what in the past he breathed out, inspired the very revelation of God. And so this Holy Spirit who dwells in me speaks to me, not in the echo chamber of my mind. He speaks to me through this book. It's his words. It's his revelation. And he speaks to me, and as he speaks to me, he nurtures my faith. My faith in whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what did I just say? We now live, the life we now live, we live by faith in Jesus Christ. And we walk with him, and we live with him, and we abide with him, and we commune with him. Because the Spirit of God himself is speaking to us by the word of God. It is relational. And not only is it positional. Not only is it relational, it is transformational. I have been implanted by the Holy Spirit into Christ. The Spirit of Christ, who by virtue of that union, has broken the dominion of sin in me. What is he now doing in me by the word of God? He is making me like the one To whom I am united. He is transforming me. He is changing me from one glory to another. As he, by the word of God, sanctifies me, molds me, and shapes me into the likeness of the one who is the likeness of the living God. Jesus Christ himself. That's the first truth I want us to grasp. God is the source of our life in Christ Jesus. Here's the second truth. God has made Christ Jesus everything to us. Everything. Paul gravitates to four terms. In these four terms, we discover as Christians, all we need more than what we need To make us eternally happy, content, and satisfied in these four terms. Look at number one. God has made Christ Jesus our what? Wisdom. Because, you know, before he implanted us into Christ, we were downright foolish. Downright foolish. Adam, I suppose, next to the Lord Jesus, the wisest man that ever lived. I think probably in comparison to Adam, we're imbeciles. That's my estimation in all likelihood. But Adam, when he fell, plunged humanity into what? Foolishness. Humanity lost the meaning of what it means to live in relation to reality. All that is good, all that is right, all that is true. But the Lord Jesus Christ embraces within himself All reality perfectly related. And when the Spirit of God implants us into Christ, he makes Christ wisdom unto us. Righteousness is the second term he uses. And before the Holy Spirit did this, before God, who is the source of our life, knit us together with Christ Jesus, before he made Christ our righteousness, we were unrighteous dead in our trespasses and sins, lovers of self, doers of iniquity, uh, rebels against God. Oh, but the Lord Jesus Christ, not only does he possess all wisdom, but he possesses all righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ, not only, not only did he embrace within in himself all reality perfectly related But the Lord Jesus Christ, as he lived his life on this earth, he submitted himself to God perfectly, fulfilling all righteousness, obeying God, loving him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when the Holy Spirit took hold of us and implanted us in Christ, making us one with him, well, Christ became to us righteousness, not our righteousness, just as it is not our wisdom, this is not our righteousness. This is our righteousness in and of ourselves. This is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we now possess again, because in God's estimation, we are one with him. What's the third term? Sanctification. At one time we were unholy, but the Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly holy. He devoted himself to God, wholly and completely. And again, when we were implanted in him, he became to us sanctification. It is positional. We were set apart from the course of this world. We were set apart against all that is antithetical to God. Set apart to him in Christ Jesus. The fourth term is what? It is redemption. At one time we were enslaved. Enslaved to our own sin. Enslaved to the penalty of our sin, death itself. Enslaved to the curse of the law. Enslaved, I dare say, to the wrath of God. But by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, he has become what unto us? Redemption, freedom, liberty. And so the verse again, because of God, he who is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Christ has become what unto us? Wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. This is what it means, go all the way back to verse 9, to be called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, whereby we are now participants, partakers of Christ's wisdom, Christ's righteousness, Christ's holiness, sanctification, the redemption that he secured, All of these things are now ours because we fellowship with Him by virtue of our union with Him. Oh, I pray we grasp it. It's the foundation, it is the starting point of everything, it is the heart of the gospel. I, I liken it, Don't, do not push comparisons too far. Please do not. Do not take analogies too far, or they always fall apart. But imagine for a moment, just imagine, I've been working really hard at my trade, and I have saved a small fortune in my bank account, right? And I approach Christian, and I take him to the bank, and I say, this is now going to be a joint account. And I add his name to my bank account, whereby what? All that I have earned, all that is rightfully mine, now belongs to whom? Christian who has done absolutely nothing to earn it. Don't push it too far. It falls apart quickly. My point is this. Do we understand what we're speaking of here when we speak of union with Christ? We are entering into, we are obtaining, we are possessing that to which we have no right. That which we have not earned. That which is not ours in and of ourselves, that to which we have not contributed anything, but because we are now one with him in God's reckoning as he looks at us. And when he looks at us, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ and he sees what wisdom personified. He sees righteousness, perfect obedience He sees sanctification, holy and set apart to him for his use. And he sees redemption. None of those things in ourselves. All of those things because we are one with Christ. God has made Christ everything to us. Now, here's the third truth I want us to get. It's a truth Paul really wants the Corinthians to get. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, in words anyway. We boast in the Lord. Verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Take a quick little journey with me. As a matter of fact, first stop right there in the immediate context, the preceding verse, verse 29, so that no human being, might boast in the presence of God. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive, if then you received it? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Still in chapter 4, verse 18. Some are arrogant. Just one more stop. We could go right through the epistle. One more, just to make sure we're getting it, into the fifth chapter, verse 2, opening statement. And you, Paul isn't very nice, is he? And you are arrogant. He's identified a problem in the church at Corinth. Arrogance, boasting in the wrong things. Why are they like, what are the ramifications of all this? Most of the problems he will address in the epistle arise from this very thing. Well, why are they arrogant? Why are they proud? It is because they no longer understand, recognize who and what they are, In Christ Jesus. It is by God's doing. That they are in Christ. It is because of God. That they are in Christ. It is God. Who is the source of their life. In Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus. God has made Christ. Everything unto them. Wisdom and righteousness. And sanctification and redemption. Everything you have is a gift. Everything you have is a revelation of the grace of God. Why then the boasting? Let's be reasonable. Verse 31, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, each each item in its turn, each problem in its course, Each issue, as we set out on this journey, we're going to get there. But this is just going to be a recurring theme as Paul hammers away, away, away at this. That something has gone dreadfully wrong in their thinking. That they no longer get it. Who they are. And now their lack of identity, awareness of their identity in Christ is showing itself, rearing its ugly head in so many different disturbing problems, issues, and complexities. But this, essentially, these verses, going back to the ninth verse, this is what it means, the eighth mark of this foundation. What it means to be called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord. It is to be in union with Him. And by virtue of this union with Him, we fellowship. We become partakers of His death, His burial, His resurrection. We become partakers of His righteousness, His holiness. We become partakers of His wisdom. We become partakers of his names. We become partakers of his titles. We become partakers of Christ himself because the spirit of God has implanted us in him. Writing some decades ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones penned the following. This, this, and he's referring to union with Christ or fellowship with Christ, this is the most glorious truth we will ever know. This is it, folks. This is the most glorious truth we will ever know. Here's the problem in the church at Corinth. They don't get it. They don't realize it. And therefore, their lives are manifesting all of these problems and Issues and divisions and everything else. Do we understand who we are in Jesus Christ? And are we making use of it? There's a great question. Let me point you in five directions as we conclude this morning. What it means to make use of the most glorious truth we will ever know. When we really make use of it. It produces humility. That's his major point there in verse 31. It's going to, again, I mentioned it, a recurring theme throughout the letter right through to the end, that when we understand who we are in Christ Jesus, the result will be humility as we boast in him alone. It is foundational to the letter. I dare say it is foundational to our lives. I dare say that the majority, should I say the majority? If not the majority, certainly close to the majority of our problems, the problems we experience in our lives, we bring upon ourselves because of a lack of awareness of who we are in Christ and a lack of the corresponding humility and poverty of spirit. We're going to see that. Here's a second way to make use of this glorious truth. It produces great comfort. And perhaps, believer, you don't have much comfort this morning. Oh, here is comfort for the soul. Here is the realization that you are one with Jesus Christ in an indissoluble union. And there is absolutely nothing that can change that. The devil can't touch it. Death can't touch it. Disease, illness, tribulation, affliction, whatever the nature of it, it can not touch it. You are one with Christ in an unbreakable union. One with him, the apple of his eye. And here is the source of our security. Here is the source of our assurance. Here's a third way to make use of this glorious truth. When we really get it and we apply it, It produces change. If you're not changing, here's why. This is it. You don't need to go to any seminars. You don't even need a counselor. You really don't. This is it. If you're not changing, and you're still dealing with the same problems you were dealing with 15 years ago, and just sort of life as usual, and there you are, just sort of spinning your wheel in the mud. No change, no transformation. Here is why. Bridges writes the following... Understand this and follow the thought flow through, please, and it will erase so much prevailing confusion in our day. Jerry Bridges writes, you will never be accepted in yourself. Okay? Starting point. You get that? Do we all agree? You will never, ever be accepted in yourself. I will never be accepted in myself. You can never, to use a figure of speech, scrub yourself clean. All right? We're good. We understand that. We never reach the point where we can look inside ourselves to find the holiness we need to stand before a holy God. But God in his grace has provided a perfect holiness in the person of his son through our union with him. We have been made holy. We have been sanctified. The only reason you and I will ever be accepted by God, the only reason we are accepted by God is Jesus Christ. That's it. Lay your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep. That is the foundation of our assurance. That is the object of our faith and our hope. That is our security, that we are one with the beloved Son of God, holy in his sight. Now, here's the thing I do not want us to get to, to miss. That is our position in Christ. Now, what does Scripture call us to do? I've said this many times from the pulpit. I'm going to say it, Lord willing, many more times. What does Scripture now call us to do? Act like it. That's it. Those are the, all the commands in Scripture all the admonitions, all the warnings. We are accepted in God's sight because of Christ. We are beloved because of Christ. We are forgiven because of Christ. We have become the wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption in Christ. That is who I am. That is my identity. When I get that, it produces change because I now want to live in a manner that is consistent with who I am. I get it. I see who I am. Well, guess what I'm going to do when I go out of here? I'm actually going to act like it. I'm going to live it out. I am going to be in practice who I am in position in Christ Jesus. That's not legalism. That's biblical Christianity. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is to live out our identity in him. Positionally, his death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. His life is my life. I'm getting all excited. (laughs) Now what am I going to do? I'm going to live like it. Starting today. And I might blow it and I'm going to repent and I'm going to start again. And I might blow it, and I'm going to repent. And now I'm on this journey of repentance and self-denial and obedience that is not legalism. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to grow up. It means to change. It means to be transformed. It means to abide in the Word of God and let the Word of God have its transformative effect in us. It is to recognize, this is wrong in my life. Guess what? I'm going to do something about it because of who I am in Christ Jesus. Jesus. I get it. I understand. It's all the grace of God. I'm one with him, knit together with him. And now my great perplexing question is this, God, what would you have me to do? There they are, commands. Well, I, by the grace of God, am going to seek to obey them. I'm going to seek to live in a manner which is consistent with them. And when I fail to, I'm going to confess it and I'm going to repent. And it's going to be two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. But I am now on a journey living as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the one with whom I am knit together as the spirit of God now produces by the grace of God through the word of God, christ likeness in me. Yeah, it produces change. Here's the fourth implication of how we make use of this glorious truth. It is the source of our hope. Because we are one with Christ, we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We're sons by adoption. A tremendous inheritance waiting for us, folks. It's going to give us heavenly treasures and eternal pleasures. It's a crown of glory that will never, ever fade away. He is going to give us a renewed universe in which righteousness dwells an eternity without pain, sorrow, or death. And far eclipsing all of these, the heaven of heavens itself, he is going to give us himself in his Son, Christ Jesus. It is the beatific vision. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These blessings, they're all ours already because we're blessed with Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They are ours by right already. We possess them. We do not yet enjoy them anywhere near what's coming, the fullness of them. Oh, our hope, an unshakable hope. Why? Because it's all ours in Christ Jesus, the one with whom we are one. Here's the fifth way to make use. And again, this is just a sampling, the tip of the iceberg. We make use of this glorious truth to produce joy. Joy, I've alluded to it a couple of times. Here it is again. Bask in it. Meditate upon it, please. Do you understand? Christian, you are one with Christ Jesus. That means that the love, with which the Father loved his Son, Jesus Christ, is the same love with which he loves you. What kind of love is that? It's an eternal love. It's an unchangeable, immutable love. It is an unshakable love. I might be poor today, rich tomorrow. I might be sick today. Well, tomorrow, I might be feeling terrible today and marvelous tomorrow. I might be having a really bad day today and a really good day tomorrow. That's life, is it not? None of that changes, touches, alters, minimizes in any way God's love for God's people in Christ Jesus. It is unchanging. Because it is not contingent upon performance. Actually check that to a degree it is. But it is Christ's performance, not yours. We are one with Christ. Christ who is the apple of the Father's eye. And therefore we are the object of his love. Oh, what joy when we realize that there is no change, no change. No matter what is transpiring in our lives, no change in our relationship to God when we are knit together with Christ. Now, to conclude, go all the way back to verse 9. Sure, it's a good place to end. It's where we began. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ Christ. Our Lord. No care groups this Wednesday, right? Members meeting. I'm going to give you two questions anyway. Two questions for you to ponder on your own. And you've already heard them this morning. But two questions I pray we will think through and take to heart and apply. Here they are. We've been called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are we making use of it? Are we making use of it? And question number two, do we live like it? Our Heavenly Father, give us wisdom from above for these things and willing hearts to apply and to receive. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victory over the grave and his exaltation at your right hand. And we thank you that you have made us one with him. Accept our praise, our thanksgiving, as we offer it in his wonderful name. Amen.